Good morning. All right, there we are. There we are, waking up a little bit. So good to be with you this morning. Um, yesterday was an awesome day. Our, our ladies had a, a lunch, a brunch, and they had like 42 women, which is awesome. That's a really great turnout. And it was just so beautiful seeing all the little pictures and people of, uh, of, of all these tables, different age groups, different races, uh, different places from town, but one family. It was beautiful. It was beautiful, and I just I celebrate uh, what God is doing in our family. Uh, my name is Drew Klein. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at South City, and it's a joy for us to have you. If you're new to us, thanks for being here with us. Uh, we're excited about uh, what God's doing in us. We've been in a series for the last two summers called Acts, the story of the church, and we've gotten up to about chapter 13. We're going verse by verse, and we're kind of just studying this, this uh, wonderful, wonderful book. And if you were not with us last week, we talked about the fact that Luke, when he wrote this book, he wasn't getting into specifics of biographies. He wasn't talking about how wonderful Paul was or how wonderful Peter was. He gave some specifics on some of their ministry, but it wasn't about them. Luke didn't get into a lot of, of church leadership or polity issues about different things that we should do as a church. He, he didn't really focus on that. The focus that Luke did have in the book of Acts is the mission of Jesus. That's what the story of Luke is about, the mission of Jesus, the great commission of Jesus going forward in the world. Uh, Jesus gave a prophecy and also some information to the disciples when he said in Acts 1.8, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to give you the power to be my witnesses in different places, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the rest of the world. And so now we're seeing that prophecy coming true. By the way, everything Jesus says comes true, right? Every single thing. And so what Luke is doing is saying, he said it, we believe it, now we're seeing it. And so the first part of our study in the book of Acts was up to about chapter 6 or so, showing us the work of mission in the Great Commission of people coming to know the Lord and the church being established in Jerusalem. And then after verse six, uh, chapter 6, we get into sort of the Judea and Samaria and Galilee aspect of where the gospel was going to. And then after that, we see now kind of where we are now, which is, now we're seeing that the gospel is going to the rest of the world. He keeps his word, right? And that's, that's, uh, that's what we're studying this morning. So we're excited to kind of get back into that. Last week, we talked about the fact that, that we see uh, in the church in Antioch, if you, if you start right in uh, chapter 13, you're going to see that they send some people on mission. But that's not a good full picture of the church of Antioch. You can't, fully under, you can't fully appreciate the work that God has been doing in the church of Antioch just to see that they send missionaries. You, they, that doesn't happen right off the bat, right? There's some growth that has to happen, some processes, and, and some uh, maturity that has to happen in a church to get to the place where they can become a church of mission like that. So we looked back uh, in Acts 11 and all the things that God was doing in the church of Antioch. I want to remind you of those because I think it's important. So the five elements we talked about last week of an effective church are, number one, evangelism. This is so important that we're telling the story of Jesus. And so we see these brothers leave Jerusalem out of persecution, and they start telling people about Jesus. They start telling Jews primarily about Jesus in Antioch, and all of a sudden a group of people begins to form, right? And then we see the Jerusalem church go, hey, what's going on in Antioch? So they send Barnabas to try and find out, and Barnabas gets there, and he realizes this is, I'm in a little bit over my head here, and I need some help. And in, in his humility, he goes and finds Saul. And when he finds Saul, then he brings Saul back to Antioch, and Saul and Barnabas pastor this group of people. It says that they disciple people for a year. So the second effective thing about an effective church is discipleship, evangelism and discipleship. And then the third thing we see is that their awareness of other churches and other people in need. There's a famine going on in Jerusalem, and so they gather some resources from the church in Antioch, and they send Saul and Barnabas to take those resources to Jerusalem. They're very kingdom-minded in their mindset. That's the third thing. The fourth thing we see, which I love, is that the church in Antioch is a multicultural church, exactly what we want to be as a church, and maybe for that reason, if nothing else. This is what God calls the church to be, a multicultural church. So the church of Antioch's elders are... Two black Africans, two Middle Easterners, and one Roman. Isn't that awesome? They value multicultural church and church leadership. And then the final thing that we see is that they're a group of men. 
and a church, a group of believers that are spirit-led. They're spirit-led. It says that they're worshiping, they're praying, they're fasting, they're seeking the Lord. And in that place is when the Holy Spirit sets apart Saul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. So that's what I want us to be. I want us to be an effective church and have those elements in our church. And then today we're going to talk about what does it look like to have not just an effective church, but to actually have an effective mission. And I believe that all of us are sent on mission. We said this a couple of weeks ago. If you're saved, you're what? Yeah, if you're saved, you're sent. We're all on mission to take the gospel of Jesus to the world. So that brings us up to where we are today in Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 4. We see out of that spirit-led group of elders and out of that worship moment, God has set apart Saul and Barnabas for his work. And now we get to see this first story in the first missionary journey uh, of Saul and Barnabas, okay? Acts 13, verse 4 says this, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Can we pray real quick before we get into our message? God, how good you are. We love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of your uh, work in establishing and expanding the church throughout the world. Lord, do it here. Do it here. God, help us to be attentive to what it means to be an effective church and what it means to be on effective mission. Open our hearts. Open our minds. Spear the living God. Move in us. Move in our church. Do what we cannot do. God, go so far beyond what we could ever dream or imagine and build your church here, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we, last week we talked about the effective church. We want to talk about an effective mission today. It's going to be real simple. I'm going to talk about nine specific elements of an effective mission based on this story, okay? Y'all with me? Y'all stayed up too late, didn't you? Y'all are a little sleepy this morning. All right. So nine effective elements of mission, all right? Here's the very first one that we see in the first part of chapter 13. We see these elders worshiping, praying, fasting. We see the church a lot of commentaries say it's not really clear if this is just elders or if this is just the whole posture of, of the church. So, so the first element on your card this morning is this. We need to have a life posture of worship, prayer, and fasting. This needs to be the kind of people that we are. This needs to be a part of our lives. It needs to be a regular aspect of who we are. A people of prayer, a people of worship, a people of fasting. See, when we do that, we're saying, God... It's not about us. What we don't see is these church leaders going, hey, what's the coolest thing in church strategy? Hmm. Hey, what's the best way to make our church a big church? We, we don't see that here. What we see them focused on is God. That's what we need to be focused on. That's what we need to be seeking. Lord, what is your heart? What is your will? It's not about what I think it might be. God, what is it that you want and let us submit to that. Let us listen to what you want to do and let us go. Here's the second thing I want you to see about the leadership and what they're doing as they're praying. And they have this posture of worship, prayer, and fasting. I want you to see that they, they send the very best. The Holy Spirit says, I've set apart for my work Saul and Barnabas, right? Or Barnabas and Saul. Now, 
it says in here they had a helper by the name of, of John. Later we know that it's going to be John Mark, right? The guy that writes the, the gospel of, of Mark. So eventually he becomes a pretty significant character. But they've got this intern guy with them. Now, what doesn't it make sense in today's church? If we want to plant a church and we've got an intern, it just makes sense. We'll raise up John. He'll be sort of our church planting intern, and we'll send him off to do the work, right? Isn't that what a lot of churches do? Let's just raise up some young guy, and then we'll send him out. Well, what we see and what we're going to look at even next week some is had that been the case, had they sent John, that had been a mistake because John kind of flakes out. John Mark kind of flakes out here in the next little bit of the story. He, they don't send the intern. They send the best. They send the ones who've been doing the discipleship. They send the leaders, the pastors. It's interesting. Notice that's out of a life, a, a posture of worship, prayer, and fasting. Here's the second thing. They go to Cyprus. They, they see an opportunity to go to a certain place. Now, we said this last week, God doesn't give a specific direction to Barnabas and Saul as to where to go. And I, and I likened it to uh, Abram when God said, go to the, the mountain I'll show you. Go to the land I'll show you. There's no specifics. Right? Abram's kind of going, um, okay. Same thing with Saul and Barnabas. They're kind of like, you said set us apart for mission and we're ready, but where to go? Well, I want you to know that up until this story, Barnabas has been driving the mission. He's been the one that was sent out of the Jerusalem church to Antioch. He's the one that took it upon himself to go find Saul and bring him back. He's sort of the driver at this point. He's kind of leading the mission. Saul is helping him, right? Um, but, uh, Paul, when he found Saul, he was in Saul's hometown of Tarsus, right? And so Saul's been kind of doing work in his hometown, but Cyprus is the hometown of Barnabas. So it just makes sense to me. I just think, you know, Barnabas goes, well, if we've we got to go somewhere, can we go to my people? I mean, you've been doing work with your people, but can we go to my people, right? This is important for me for that they know who Jesus is. Can we go to my people? This is the second thing for your card. Have a passion for your own people. Do you have a passion for your own people? See, when God saves our souls, when he, when he changes us, the very first thing that ought to be on our soul and our heart is, oh my gosh, I want my people to know. I want my family to know Jesus, right? I, I want my office to know Jesus. I want my tribe to know Jesus. I want, I want my community, my neighborhood, my city. I want them to know Jesus. And so I think what we see here is Barnabas going, let's go to my people. You've been with your people, but can we go to my people and start this missionary journey on Cyprus? It's important that you have a passion for your own people. And by the way, can I tell you, when you get a sense of that mission towards your own people, when you go, oh, you're going to find something. And they, they're going to find something too, that God is already at work there. Look with me in Acts um, eleven nineteen. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. This is what I want you to see. We're, Luke has kind of zeroed in on the church in Antioch. But God is already working in Phoenicia and in Cyprus. Do you see that? He's already sent people there telling the story of Jesus. So yes, Saul and Barnabas are going to go there, but they're going to meet believers there. They're going to see that God is already at work. And guess what? Whoever the Lord lays on your heart to go to, God's already at work. I believe that. He works on both ends. We've talked about this before. But as God lays on your heart to go and you're obedient to walk in the direction he sends you, on mission, whether it's a city or a family member or whatever the case may be, God, I believe, is already at work. He's, the Bible says he's always at work. And I think you'll find him working wherever it is that you go. Here's the third thing we see. They have a passion not just for their own people, but they have a passion for other people. The text says that they, they, they sail and they land on the eastern coast, Seleucia. And on that eastern coast, they begin to go into the synagogues and preach. But it says, and it's a little, you miss it if you read it too fast, but it says they work their way through the island. Now, can I tell you, it's a 90-mile journey from the east coast to the west coast of Cyprus. 
90 miles, they're taking the mission of Jesus from the East Coast through, through towns, synagogues, people, all the way to the West Coast at Paphos. It's important that we don't just take our mission to those that are just our people. we got to take it to everybody, don't we? And the sad reality is the church at different times has said, no, let's take it, let's just take it over here. No, let's, let's not worry about that neighborhood. Let's not go across those railroad tracks. Let's not, it's scary to go over there. But what we see in this study is they didn't make any distinction. They said, everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs this message. And they work their way 90 miles from the East Coast to the West Coast. Isn't that beautiful? They don't just tell a certain group. They tell everybody they could. They didn't skip neighborhoods. They told everyone the gospel of Jesus. Here's the fourth thing. They preach about the Messiah, and they tell the whole love story of Jesus. Now, it says that they specifically go to synagogues, and they kind of reserve their mission to Jewish people for the most part, telling Jews only. Well, I want you to think about that. First of all, if you're a Jew, you've been raised under the understanding that there's going to be a Messiah right? You, you've, you've seen scripture, you know scripture, you're, you're waiting, you're praying, you're expectant and hoping. In fact, there are devout Jews today, sadly, who are expectant and hoping still for a Messiah. And so what we see Saul and Barnabas do is they go into those synagogues and they can complete the, the circle. They can go full circle now and say, we've been waiting for this Messiah. We, we know from prophecy that we've been waiting and he's going to do these things. And we've got to tell you, can you feel the excitement? He's come. His name is Jesus, and he fulfilled every single prophecy of Scripture. And he's come. You still need to trust in him. You still need to believe that he's the Savior of the world. And they complete full circle for people who are, are waiting. And so they go to the synagogues first, right? First to the Jew and then to the Gentile, Scripture says. Listen, there are people in your life who are waiting to find out what life is about. They need to know full circle, why do we exist? What is the origin of life? What is the purpose? Why am I here? Does my life make any difference at all? You will never find the answer to those questions apart from Jesus. Never. Only he can give you the understanding full circle. Only he can make sense of the things that don't make sense in your life. Only he can satisfy our souls. And it's so important that we tell the whole story of God, right? Now, what we see here is really beautiful, and our Acts cohort will know what I'm talking about when I say what we see here is the beginning of what's called the Pauline cycle. So a cycle is something that repeats itself, right? Just moves on and on. Well, this is the beginning of that Pauline cycle. This is what it means. They preach. They go in the synagogues, and they begin to preach. Well, he repeats that. Later on, he's going to keep doing it. So we begin to see what looks like a pattern with Paul's ministry. So he preaches in the synagogue, and people get saved. And as they get saved, these people begin to form a few people who've been saved. And now they're going, what do we do with our lives now? Now that we know about the Messiah, what, what do we do? What, what does life look like now? And so then we see Paul kind of gathering these people together and helping, become, helping them to become established in their faith, going deeper in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And then after that, it says he begins to develop leaders. And out of that development of leaders, he appoints elders. And now those elders can help develop not just communities of saved people, but churches. And out of the development of those churches, they send people on mission. And guess what those people go do? They preach. And then they establish those believers. You see, it's just a cycle. It happens over and over again, and guess what? It's still happening and should be happening at South City Church. This is the mission of God, and this is the way that's been laid out for us in Scripture of effective mission. You know what? It's also not a macro-level thing. It's also a micro-level thing. So let me just ask you, believer in Jesus, now that you know him, now that you've been saved by his grace, have you grown deeper in discipleship with him? Do you know him more? Do you have an understanding of who he really is and what life is about with him, right? Are you a part of a community that, that gets that and is working to know that as well? Are you being raised up as a leader? Because no one is to stay down here in just the follower status. We all become leaders. 
We can all lead. And then guess what? We can all go to some way, some aspect or another. We can. So this is not just macro-level church. This is also micro-level individual believer. What does it look like in your life? One thing I can tell you for sure is this. You can never know what God might do through your witness. You never know what God might do through your testimony, through your, through your willingness to step out there and say something, but I can promise you this, he can't do anything with your silence. You'll never know what he can do with maybe a, a, a weak voice and an honest description of what he's done in your life, but he can't do anything with your silence. Nothing. It's not about how well you witness not about how much you know as a believer. Just share your story. I think about the woman at the well. You know, after Jesus had that exchange with her, she left immediately, didn't she? How long was it before that she was trained before she began to witness? Immediate, right? She said, I've met the Messiah, and he's given me living water. And i got to tell my family I got to tell my town, I got to tell everybody, the Messiah's come, and I know him, I met him, right? She, she didn't have some sort of training session. She didn't know everything about theology. She, she just went and told her story, and you know what? God expects the same of us. Just tell your story. You might have to go, man, I don't know. All I can tell you is I'm different. All I can tell you is I've got hope. All I can tell you is Jesus has changed my soul and my life. And I'm learning all the rest. John 6.44 says this. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is Jesus speaking. It says, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Listen, that means that it's not how well you speak. It's not how well you preach. It's not about those things because Nothing happens apart from the Father drawing someone to himself. What that means is you might get to plant a seed. A conversation that may feel awkward, like, well, that didn't do any good, actually may have planted a seed of faith in someone's life. And then you may be the person who comes along after somebody else has planted a seed, and you might get to be, be the guy that gets to water that seed and then get them thinking a little bit more. And then you might get the unbelievable privilege of being the person who gets to see them put their faith and their trust in Jesus completely. It's incredible. But it's not how great you are. It's how good he is. Right? That's what matters. And we just have to be obedient to him. God will do nothing with our silence, but he can change someone's eternity with our obedience. Romans 10, 14 says this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching friends can i tell you that this is how people are going to come to know jesus how many of us believers are just kind of sitting back going i hope they come to know jesus that's not how it works it doesn't work that way we have to speak we have to rise up with courage and we have to go if we want them to know christ paul is saying the way that they're going to know him is by preaching by sharing by telling the truth that's how they'll know. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that God's design in Ephesians 3 says that the manifold wisdom of God is going to be known through the church. He wants to use you. And we have to go. We have to speak. We have to be courageous. Here's the fifth thing on your card. <laughs> they run into the enemy pretty quick. Now, we don't see them run into the enemy through the whole island, at least in Luke's account here, but I guarantee you they did. <laughs> I guarantee you they ran into trouble from day one. But Luke only gives us this experience on the west coast at Paphos. But we see that they run into the enemy. This is for your card number five. No, there will always be opposition to mission. There will always be opposition to mission. The enemy will do his very best to distract you from the things that matter most, right? In church, you're going to be distracted by style. You're going to be distracted by preference. 
You might even be distracted by how far you have to come to come to this church. Don't pay attention to the things that don't matter as much. See where God is at work and join him in it confidently and get to work. It's that simple. Put the things that don't matter as much, put them down where they, where they belong. Make the main things the main things. Is God at work here? Then let's join him and let's be active to do what he wants us to do. Let's get going. We don't have time, friends. We don't have time. I was thinking this morning. I was praying this morning for our service. And I was just thinking about my own life and some of the circumstances surrounding how I'm here. <laughs> and uh, I just felt like the, the Spirit said to my heart, you, you exist for a purpose, and you get to be a part of that purpose today. I'm created to do what I'm doing right now. The privilege that I get to have right now to share the gospel of Jesus with you is how, why I was created. And it's also why you were created. How are we sharing? How are we doing it? But know when we do it, we're going to face the enemy, but we're never alone. Jesus said in Matthew 28, right? I'll be with you till the end of the earth. So even when we face opposition, even when it's scary, even when we get in a situation we don't know what to do, God is with us. He is with us. Number six, Saul becomes Paul. Now, a lot of people have this misconception that Saul becomes Paul on the road to Damascus. Right? That makes sense. That's when he got changed. Saul does not become Paul on the road to Damascus. In fact, Saul stays Saul on, in Damascus. He gets discipled in Damascus. Saul goes to Arabia for three years. Saul comes to Jerusalem after that. Many years, Saul stays Saul. Right? He's just Saul until now. The question is why? Why does Saul just now become Paul? Well, a lot of theologians, and I happen to believe and agree, that his Hebrew name was probably Saul, and his Roman name was probably Paul. Just like John Mark. See, this was a society of Jewish people living among Romans, and they had to be able to go in and out from either culture and either society. And so, just like John Mark, he, he would have had... Saul and maybe Paul as, as both names. This seems to me like an intentional moment that, that Saul chooses to be known as Paul. And, and this is the way Luke records it. And this is why. Number six, Saul becomes Paul. Find ways to connect to people. Con contextualize. Contextualize is the big way of saying find ways to connect to people. Paul goes, hey, um, this guy's name, who's the proconsul, his name is Sergius Paulus, Right? I think with all my heart, I believe Paul went, hey, my name's Paul. I think it's that simple. I do. I think he went, my name's Paul. We got that in common. There's no telling what you have in common with people. It may be a name like that. It may be that you went to the same college or that you have the same sports team. It doesn't matter what the specifics are, but you can find a way to contextualize and, and create a gospel conversation starting with how you can connect. And we live in Bryant. Where do you guys live? Oh, no, no kidding. We live over here. Well, man, we go to that restaurant. That's our favorite restaurant. Gospel conversations have to start with places of trust. They have to start in a place of authenticity. And I believe Paul was contextualizing to Sergius Paulus. Paul, uh, the rest of his ministry is known as Paul, not Saul. We don't see Saul again. But we also don't see Paul going back anywhere but the Greco-Roman world. He ends up dying in Rome where he continues to use his Roman name. You know, one of the, the coolest things about Paul's ministry, and we'll get to it here before too long, Acts 17 talks about how Paul goes to Athens. And, and a lot of people use this to talk about how he contextualizes ministry. But he goes to Athens, and, and Athens is the Areopagus. And this place is a place of idols. And Paul has the wherewithal to look around get a sense from what these people believe. This is called contextualization. He understands the language. He understands what they believe. He understands that they want to know what everything new. What's something new going on? You tell us about the new religion. Are you the guy that's got the resurrection, I think? Tell us about it. Sure, let's hear about it. And Paul contextualizes the truth of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, by saying, yeah, I see that you guys have all these idols. That's great. That's interesting. You know, there's one 
by the name of the unknown God. That's actually the God I worship. You see what he did? He contextualized within what they believed so that he could tell them the gospel of Jesus. That's what you have to do. You have to find connection points to people to give them the truth. In fact, he even shares with the uh, church at Corinth his heart kind of behind contextualization. 1 Corinthians 9.22 says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Does that guy sound like he wouldn't mind changing his name if it meant it might save somebody? Yeah. I'll do whatever it takes. Master of contextualization. Number seven, Paul spoke the truth boldly, and that's what we have to do. We have to speak the truth boldly. We have to be a people of conviction, right? Unafraid of speaking up for the things that matter, for truth, against the enemy, against the obstacles of mission, and for the mission of Jesus. We have to be unafraid. When I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think about the church, the early church in Acts 4 that prayed for this very thing. Look with me, Acts 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 29. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all what? Boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And they had prayed, and the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The early church knew how important it was to stand up for what mattered. And they were praying. They were just people like us. And yet they were afraid for their lives. And they were saying, God, would you give us the courage to stand up and speak with boldness? This is after Peter and John had come back from the temple and been held by the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin said, you're just a bunch of untrained, common men. But we don't understand how you're speaking with such wisdom and such boldness. And then they come back from that exchange to the church and the church together with Peter and John. And they pray for boldness. We need to be a church that's praying for boldness. We've got to watch how we use the boldness, though, right? This is what I mean. I want you to notice in our, in our text today that Paul's fight with the magician, it really wasn't Paul's fight. <laughs> it was the Holy Spirit's fight. Look here at Acts 13, verse 9. But Paul, who was also called, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. He said he's filled with the Holy Spirit, right? This is not Paul's fight. This is the Spirit's fight through Paul. There's a big difference, isn't there? A huge difference. If I took on every single fight that, my, that comes across my heart or my conscience or whatever on Facebook, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be fighting at home on my phone, right? You don't take on every single thing that you can take on just to take it on. Right or wrong, we have to be a people filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Because let me tell you what happens. When you take on a fight and you're not filled with the Holy Spirit of God, it's futile. It's a waste of breath. And you've all done it. You know what I'm talking about. You finish that fight and then you go, well, that was, what did I do that for, right? But if the Holy Spirit is filled in you and you let his fight be what matters more than your fight, then God will give you the words to say, and you'll use that spirit within you to make a difference. Why don't you see what Paul does here? He shows the enemy that the enemy is opposite of everything God wants to do. Can I just say, too, listen, that seems to be consistent in my life. When God's trying to do something, the enemy's trying to pull you in the opposite direction. <laughs> but you want to talk about contextualization? The enemy is a master of contextualization. Amazing. Even in our story, we have... Sergius Paulus, who's like the governor of Paphos. And next to him is this guy who's sort of a sorcerer. And the Romans were famous for, for, being, for liking the occult and liking little famous little tricks and things. So he'd keep these guys close. And we see that Paul addresses this uh, sorcerer. His name is Bar-Jesus. Now that literally means son of the Savior. Bar, son, Jesus, which means salvation, son of salvation, son of the Savior. Is he the son of the Savior? Is he the son of salvation? No, he's demon-possessed. 
You see what the enemy does? He, there's plenty of people that are preaching today that have nothing to do with God. And they'll preach certain texts and certain things that have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus. It's about them. And we see this sorcerer trying to move Sergius Paulus away from the truth of God. And so Paul speaks boldly. He stands up and he speaks boldly and he says, uh, he says that you are, uh, says you're the son of the devil, right? And as soon as he would have said that, people would have gone, wait, his name is Bar-Jesus. He's speaking to the fact that he's not son of the Savior. He's son of the devil. He's speaking directly to his identity even. You're the son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? You know, I think about some of the things that I see in our culture today. And uh, I think about Isaiah 5.20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. It's happening a lot. It's happening all over the place. People that I have pastored, people that I thought knew Jesus Christ as their Savior, proclaiming heresies and still saying, I'm a Christian. Not, not taking the word of God for what it is, but saying, no, it doesn't really mean that. We've got to be so careful. Paul says to uh, Bar-Jesus, he says, you're perverting the way of salvation. When it's simple, it's straight. And here you're making it crooked, you're making it hard. And what's interesting is we see Paul do something. There's a miracle that takes place. That's number eight on your card. Miracles are a part of the mission. They're a part of the mission. We've got to trust that God will do amazing things. I think it's kind of ironic that Paul, the one who was blinded on the road to Damascus, <laughs> creates this miracle when he blinds Bar-Jesus. It's interesting. This man is blinded. He can't see. He's, he, he's stumbling around looking for someone to lead him. You know, when you read the book of Acts, you can't read it without seeing miracles. You can't read it without seeing the Holy Spirit doing amazing work over and over again throughout the whole thing. My question is, do we expect miracles? As believers today, do we, do we look for miracles? Do we look for God to do something that can't be done otherwise? Because I'm, I'm positive he's still a miracle-working God. I've seen in the last three years... Concerning South City, I've seen more miraculous movement of God than I have, and, and, I, and I'll celebrate 30 years of ministry in January. In 30 years, I've never seen God do more miraculous things in the last three years. It's been unbelievable. I, I look at some of you. I see people who've been healed. I see some people whose marriages have, have, have been strengthened. I see people whose relationship with Jesus is now deeper. See, I don't think the miracles we're going to see may look quite like they did in Acts. I'm not sure that I'm going to walk by and somebody's going to be healed by the shadow. That go, that, I'm not sure that's going to happen, right? However, God is working miracles. Are we looking for them? Are we expecting them? Do we believe that he can do them? Are we praying for them? That church in Acts 4, they, they were praying for miracles. Did you see that? They prayed for boldness and they said, Lord, continue to show miracles, signs and wonders through your holy servant, Jesus. God is still a miracle-working God. We need to be praying that he would do miracles around us. For salvation, I've said this before, the whole purpose in every miracle in Scripture is that somebody would come to Jesus in salvation. And then that's the greatest miracle there is. We need to be praying as a church, God, we need some miracles. We need you to do some amazing things, God, around here so that people will come to know you as their Savior. We need a faith. That believes God is still working miracles. But you know what we see instead of miracles? We get blinded by the obstacles. We see these distractions. Can you imagine Paul? He's traveled all the way from the east coast to west coast. They're almost done with this tour on Cyprus. And he's having this amazing conversation with this very significant individual. And he's like, oh, this guy just shut up, this sorcerer guy. He's like, he seems like such a distraction, doesn't he? He's such a pain. I'm preaching, I'm, I'm able to get, I'm getting through to this guy, but this guy won't shut up. He keeps trying to, but I want you to see something, something that the Lord showed me this week that's so important. See, God gives us obstacles sometimes, and sometimes he either removes the obstacle 
or he uses the obstacle. He'll do one of two things. He'll either remove it or he'll use it. But it's so important that we don't just dismiss it. See, it was, it was the opposition of this man. It was the distraction of this man that led Sergius Paulus to salvation. Do you see that? Paul was preaching. Paul was preaching. This guy's trying to derail him. Paul gets angry, stands up boldly, causes this man to be blind. It was through the distraction that God used to bring this man to Christ. So often we just keep going, oh, God, it's just move the distraction so I can do what you want me to do. Listen, the, the plan was to see this man come to Jesus. That was, that was the hope. And it was the distraction of this man. It was the, the confusion. It was both the preaching, the bold faith of Paul, the miracle of, uh, of the Lord through Paul that led this man to belief. Can I just tell you this morning that our church, we have some obstacles too. You have obstacles when you're in mission, you always will. But our church is facing an obstacle that I want you to pray about. I want you to pray about finances for our church, okay? We've mentioned this in our partner meeting. I want to mention it again. Um, you see on the card, it's, it's pretty easy to see. Every, every week we give you a card and you can see kind of where the giving is for our church and where our budget is. And we are consistently short for our budget, $15,000 per month. I'm not really good at math, but I'm good enough to know that whatever savings we have is going by pretty quickly when we're, meeting, we're seeing a deficit of $15,000 per month. That savings is going away fairly quickly. So this is what I would like to ask you to pray. Our elders and our staff pastors are going away this week, and we're going to retreat, and we're going to lay ourselves out before the Lord, and we're going to pray. And we're going to fast, and we're going to worship, and we're going to say, God, what do you want to do with this church, and what do you want to do with us? Because we'll be obedient to whatever you call us to do, and we'll give it all to you, whatever you want. Doesn't matter. You, you say what it is, we'll follow you. But would you pray for us? Would you? Would you please pray for us this week as we seek the Lord about this obstacle? And the thing that has been so encouraging to me about the Lord is, I keep seeing an obstacle. I keep seeing a distraction, and God's going, maybe it's the distraction that I want to use to bring people to Jesus. And I want to have that faith, and I want you to help me. Will you do that? Would you pray with me that whatever this distraction is, that God would use it for his glory? Here's the last thing I want to show you this morning in our message. Acts 13, 12. Last verse in our text says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And I don't know if you see this like I see it, but I want you to look at something. Does it say that he believed because he was astonished at the miracle Paul worked? Nope. Wait, wait, wait. Maybe he was astonished at the teaching of Paul. Come on, Paul's a pretty good teacher. Was that it? Nope. I think it's so interesting. He was astonished at the teaching of the what? The Lord. Can I just tell you, whoever stands in this position, our prayer is that whatever they teach, that they be less important than what God wants to teach. That he teach. You see, Paul preached, but God taught. Whoever teaches in this position, I pray that they decrease and Jesus increase. That we don't remember our names. Our names aren't important. But that God would teach. Friends, people should see him, not us. They should see him, not us. And so if you're witnessing, if your ministry is more about you than people coming to know Jesus and seeing him, something's wrong. If your witnessing is more about winning an argument in apologetics, you've already lost. It's not about you and it's not about winning. It's about humbly taking the message of Jesus to people. Did you know that people can smell a sales pitch from a mile away? They can, they can smell the, my next step to say to you in this point is this one, dot, 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 dot. They can smell it. They can sense it. You know what people want? They want friendship. They want real relationships. They want real people who've made mistakes and are struggling because we all are in some way and we all have a, 
a need for God to be real in our lives. That's what people need to hear. In fact, somebody might be here this morning, and that's what you need to hear. That you're not alone. And no, you're not perfect, because none of us are. But Jesus has made a way for us to know God through his sacrifice on the cross. And if you've never trusted him to be your Savior, do it today. Make a choice today to follow him in obedience. It's not about your church attendance. It's not about your denomination. It's about your faith in a Savior who's given his life for you. We've got to just make this message simple and plain. And can I just challenge, this is my challenge for us today. Do you know how to share your faith with people? I mean, really. How long have you known Jesus? And how many people have you shared your faith with? Because it's not just about you. It's not just about the fact that you know the truth. God has given you this truth with an expectation that you take it to the world. Have you told them? Do you know how? I'm going to send you an email either this afternoon or tomorrow, and it's going to give you some specifics about how to share your faith. And I hope that you'll look at that and, and watch those videos and, and, and begin to pray, Lord, help me understand how to just to share my story and to share my faith. I, I follow a church in Atlanta. It's called Passion City Church where Louis Giglio is a pastor. I, I just think it's a really neat place. Something they did recently is they, they asked people to begin to share their faith with others. And they created this thing called the Jesus Wall. And they took all these light bulbs and they created this kind of artwork piece. Over 2,000 light bulbs. And they said, when you witness to someone and they come to know Jesus, we're going to turn on that light bulb. And we've got a picture of what it looks like with light bulbs turned on. You can see some of them are not turned on, but for every light that is turned on, that represents a life that has come to know Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? What if we celebrated that for you and for us as a church what if we create I don't know, I'll, I'll create whatever we need to create we'll create that same thing i don't care but what if we begin to celebrate you telling people about jesus and so when somebody comes and accepts christ come tell us about it we'll figure out a way to celebrate it my challenge to us today is are we sharing the gospel of jesus because that's why we exist that's what god has called us to do we can't just sit on our laurels and and hope somebody else will do it. No, he's given us the message. And I believe he's given us opportunities. I just don't know that we're taking them. Here's the questions I want to close with this morning. Is your life one of worship and prayer? Is it, is it a posture of worship and prayer? Are you listening to the Spirit? Are you saying yes? Do you have a passion for all people, not just your people? Do you love all people enough to let them know the truth? Are you being intentional about sharing the gospel? Do you see opposition as an opportunity? Next time you see opposition to what you're trying to do, reach somebody, smile and go, oh, God may be using this very thing to change this person's life. Do you find ways to connect with people and contextualize? How can I connect with you and us have a real authentic conversation? And do you have a bold faith? Are you standing for the truth? Are you allowing the spirit to fill your life so that you can speak that truth? Are you expecting a miracle and do people see the Lord more than you when it comes to the ministry that you have? I'm praying for our church. The very first thing we see as an effective church in, in uh, the book of Acts is that they were people of, of witness. Antioch Church was the very first church to actually send foreign missionaries. What is God doing in us? Because it's not about your staff and elders. It's about the body, right? Our job is to equip you, the saints, for the work of the ministry. What are we doing together to see Jesus known? Right here, right in your neighborhood, right in your family, right where you work. Pray with me. Father God, I pray that you would convict our hearts and souls of what matters most, Lord, that we would be a people who has a desire to see you made known, God. God, can I just confess it's easy to have grown up in church and this not be a weight that we carry. Would you forgive us? 
We've made church so much about us. We've made church for us, in fact. We just consume. I like it or I don't, or it's this or it's that, and that's not the church, God. Lord, it's about you. It's about the truth of Jesus being taken to a broken and hopeless world. And we don't have time to play church anymore. God, would you forgive us and would you convict us to take this beautiful message of Jesus to someone who doesn't know him? God, would you convict convict our hearts now? Lay someone on our hearts. Lay someone on our minds now, God. Even in this prayer, may there be a face of someone, of a family, of a community, of a city, of a nation. I don't care. God, lay on our hearts the burden of what's on your heart that people come to know you and change us, Lord. Change us to be convicted, to make a difference, to take this story. Help us to be a bold people. Help us to expect you to show us the way through miracles, God. And God, put words in our mouths, passion in our hearts to speak the truth to people who don't know you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the beautiful salvation that we have experienced in Jesus. God, help us not to be a selfish people with that, but to turn and let our light in us shine to this world that you would use it for your glory. And do it here, God. Do it here. Do it in this church. Do it in this neighborhood. Do it in this community and wherever wherever we live. For your glory, God. Give us your eyes to see people the way you see them. We pray it in Jesus' name.